Welcome back, everyone, to the Hard Time Strongman Podcast, where we are creating a better class of man. Joining us this week is Mr. Lance from Seatless Dynamics. We're going to have a discussion kind of in the general prepared space, but uh, specifically, Lance has an in-depth background on a lot of the medical stuff and a lot of the bushcraft stuff, so we thought it would be ideal to bring someone on board that kind of has a different perspective in this whole prepared space. Welcome, Lance. Thanks for being here today, dude. Hey, what's going on, man? I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you, man, making the time because I know whenever we reached out earlier and we were kind of talking, um, you're a super busy dude with your company and like you're still working. So um, I really appreciate you making the time. Just for the people who aren't really aware of what Sealist Dynamics is exactly, could you just kind of just give us a quick brief on what you're doing and kind of your background? Yeah, man, sure. Um, so this is kind of born, you know, over years of trying to do stuff and uh, you know, even success and failure and all that kind of stuff. And so basically me, man, I, I started off, uh, in the U S military, I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I did that for six years. Um, that was back in the, you know, early to mid two thousands, Iraq was going on. I went and did that. And, uh, after military, I, I transitioned not well to, so to speak, you know, like a lot of guys do, I tried to find what I was supposed to be doing and, um, what I needed to do kind of bounced around. And, uh, eventually I wound up in the medical field and really don't even not know I got there, you know, to be honest, uh, it was kind of a, like, eh, I should probably try to go do this and see what happens. And so I did, um, I got into pre-hospital medicine and, uh, became a paramedic and wound up, uh, being attracted to the law enforcement side of the house locally and assisted with them and worked as an operator medic with them. Um, and then did that for about a year and a half. And, uh, after a while kind of was like, okay, saw that side of the house and what was going on decided it was time for me to move on and do something else. And now I still work full time, obviously as a paramedic in the field. And I also work as uh, an EMS educator. So I teach EMTs and paramedics and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I also obviously teach with Cellus and as far as getting that kind of stuff done. So to me, it's kind of a, you know, a combination of being able to, to teach working professionals in a certain room. I really like enjoying doing that. I have a, a real passion for, um, you know, that infrastructure, first responders and how that works, but then also uh, being able to teach everyday guys and gals on what's going on. And to me, that's a lot of fun, especially seeing the combination of those, because a lot of the classes that we do will have all walks of life. You know, we'll have people who are just everyday people. We'll have people who are first responders. You know, they mix together and they kind of, they bring their particular strengths together. And we think of problem solve, you know, with everybody's walks of life in the background and all that kind of stuff. So... Oh, that's super awesome, man. Because I know, um, I know here up in Canada, um, all the medical stuff is very separate. So there will be people who have a s- similar background to you, not nearly as extensive, but they'll try and run medical training for normal people. But then they'll have classes specific to first responders or normal people. They don't have a blending of it. So I like that you're doing that because it's kind of normalizing it for everybody. Well, and I'll tell you this, man, I, I, and I've said this in classes a lot, and sometimes it may offend people or it may not. It, it really doesn't matter to me on that. But the problem is, is that um, if you if you're a working professional as a, quote, first responder, uh, you're actually not the first responder. Uh, you're generally the second or the third responder. The first responder is the person on scene when it happens. And that's generally just everyday people. You know, if you're a witness to the event, um, you either have a choice. You, you can be a bystander or you can be an asset on that. And so what I would seek to do for a lot of people is train them when that event occurs that they can actually take part in what goes. And, and kind of one of the things I tried to bring to the table, 
is something called an all hazards approach, right? And all hazards basically meaning that there's not something that you're not willing to do if you have the training. And if you want to stay in play, um, you're able to do that. And that obviously means, you know, if there's a violent conflict involved and that's why you're there to begin with as far as, you know, out in public and everyday world. Um, if you carry, you're armed, you're prepared, you want to, you want to get in, you want to play, you want to do that, then that's on to you. That's the training to do that. Um, but also the biggest thing too is providing, you know, medical care that needs to take place at that time because most of these events, that's the reason we have the death count that we do, um, especially in the States with, you know, these active killer events. Um, a lot of times, you know, we're looking at a picture where first responders, again, quote, first responders, especially medical services are not being allowed to go into these scenes. They're not being able to work these scenes. And, you know, if you look at all the data from all of these mass CAS events, you know, the Secret Service is basically stating that the average response time for law enforcement is somewhere to four to six minutes, um, you know, to get into the door, to find out, to make contact with what's going on. But the first average response time for a medical provider is close to 50 minutes before they're able to make contact. Because unfortunately, and I say this truthfully, unfortunately, um, we have this thing where law enforcement in the States really does like to lock down on things. And they are very authoritative on what they're trying to do, good and bad, right? We're not going to try to get into a pro-cop versus, you know, un-pro-cop conversation. We all have strengths and weaknesses and we all have room to improve. But what's occurring is they're saying, well, you're not trained to go into a dynamic situation. You're going to have to wait outside until we clear it and we allow you to come in. Um, and that problem is twofold. The problem is is on the shoulders of people that, that I work with, you know, that work in, in the actual uh, within the infrastructure in the system, because a lot of them are not trained to get involved in that type of dynamic situation. Right. Um, some of them don't want to, they're like, that's not my job. I didn't sign up to dodge bullets or whatever. I signed up to work medical calls and, and which I understand you're not, you're not going to force somebody into the room. Um, but at the same time, it, it's important to realize that there are people capable of doing it and we have to be smarter and more capable to be able to get in there and make that happen. Because that's the only way if you're going to take these events and you see all these people that are dying. Uh, you know, very few of these people are probably dying right when the event happens. Most of them are dying because they're left there bleeding out. They can be salvageable and they're not. By the time somebody gets them, provides care, they are no longer sustainable as a, as an actual uh, casualty to survive. So, yeah, no. And I, I don't even think it's, it's like being um, a negative aspect to bring it up. Like you said, not pro cop versus, you know, um, against the police or whatever. It's the reality because you've, you like, you see it full time as a paramedic that sometimes you show up and you're kind of, kept separate because they have to secure the scene they're so focused on other stuff they're so narrow-minded in whatever the scenario is and then, like you said by the time actual medical care arrives it's significantly slower than when hopefully the police show up but like you said the reality is that uh air quote first response is usually a prepared citizen hopefully if there's a prepared citizen there so no man i really like that approach and it's again it's like a big holistic picture you're trying to encompass the, the broad picture to real to make it realized to the most people, regardless of what uniform you wear, or if you don't wear uniform, that this is the reality. And like, and like you said, and I say this all the time, you're either creating an asset there or you're just a bystander, just kind of chilling and you have a story for later. You're not really helping people. For sure. And you know, unfortunately most of it, uh, these days is pull out your cell phone and start filming. Mm -hmm. It's not a call to action. It's not a call to, you know, put something in motion. 
And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people here in the States carry a gun, you know, they do. And obviously more, there's places where it's more prevalent than others as far as laws and viewpoint and, you know, ideology and all that kind of stuff. But the issue is, is that while people, you know, carry weapons, very fewer people actually train with those weapons as far as, you know, really getting out there and actually getting combative with it and stuff. And then the issue is, is that even fewer of those people practice, you know, medical skills and then carry the ability to uh, use those skills. You know, well, there's not a whole lot of room on the body to carry everything. Right. And that's the problem. By the time you you carry a gun, you, you carry an extra mag, depending on what you're carrying. You have a knife, you have a flashlight, you know, a lot of just normal everyday carry items. Where do we start putting the medical stuff? You know, how do we carry that around with us without, you know, imprinting and, you know, uh, kind of drawing away from our activities and not being able to just walk normally because we're loaded down with some kind of kit. So there is a trade-off there, you know. Um, what are you more likely to do? Are you more likely to get in a gunfight or are you more likely to be able to respond to some type of medical um you know, some type of medical need there. So it's really going back and trying to balance that and trying to rework the problem and figure out statistically what are we going to be involved with and how can we make the best response in, in doing that. And, you know, that's like the American Heart Association here, you know, obviously they're worldwide, right? They, they're, they're teaching CPR all over the world. And their initiative was, hey, the best way we could save lives is to train people to start performing CPR immediately on scene. Well, the same thing I believe should happen as far as grassroots on any type of trauma as well is that having people on scene immediately that it's not unusual for something to occur and have somebody able to negate the threat if applicable and then immediately start providing medical care as far as hemorrhage control and, you know, some type of trauma understanding that's going on. And, and I believe that that's an attainable, I believe that's an attainable goal. You know, if a lot, enough people get in, in the right mindset and they get on board together, then, you know, we can actually help and make something happen you know, to, to, to start fixing some of those things. So, yeah. And I, I, I think just highlighting the reality of it and, and that, like you said, if, if you're carrying a firearm, why would you not carry medical? And I know I've talked to a lot of people now about the EDC world um, again, because in the States, you guys are fortunate enough to carry a firearm. I'm like, if you're carrying a firearm, why would you not carry some sort of some like form of medical equipment with you? Right. But like you said, it's that balancing act where they're like, well, now I'm weighing down. I'm carrying too much stuff. I'm like, yeah, but your most likely event is probably something medical or your most dangerous. You do get in a shootout. You probably want some medical kit on you at some point, even if it's not for the person. It could be for you. It could be for, you know, a loved one with you. It's just this this crazy thing where. It's very like sexy now to get all the EDC stuff, but no one wants to like buy a cool trauma kit, you know what I mean, and carry it on them other than like, oh, I have something in my car or I have something in my bag, but my bag's in my car and it's not on my person, right? It's just, it's very weird that normal, like other people aren't normalizing this. So it's, it's really great to see, man, that you're taking it as the bigger picture and you're explaining, okay, well, this is your most likely actually probably something medical. Yeah, and, and, you know, we, we always have that whole, I guess the quote could be used, my gunfight. You know, mm -hmm. everybody has that in their mind, what it's going to look like, how it's going to go down. They, they, you know, they see it in their mind when they train. They think about it, and, you know, they're always the good guy in the, in the picture, right, because that's how that works for us. And we're always going to win, you know, right, because that's how we like to think about things. We never like to think about failure. We only want to think about us actually doing the cool guy stuff. But, you know, a little bit of dark humor that I use a lot in training is, is that I, I often say it's a contact sport. Somebody's going to get hit, you know, mm -hmm. and the issue is, is that you may very well be the one 
he's going to get hit, you know, because we have to be good. The bad guy just has to get lucky a lot of times. You yeah. know, statistically, if rounds are, are flying, there's a good chance that somebody's going to get hit during that time. And, you know, the, the closer the quarters, which are, we've, we've signed the contract, if you're out there carrying a, you know, defensive weapon, a handgun, knife, or whatever, you literally have signed the contract saying that I'm looking to get into some type of close quarter combat. You know, whether it's going to be in a small building, a small room, inside of a vehicle, around a vehicle, this is where I'm going to fight, and it's, it's going to be close in nature. Um, and obviously, that's a very dynamic skill set, and I believe that, you know, a lot of times the gun's not even enough there. I feel like we should be training with the blade. I feel like we should be training with, you know, unarmed combat, some type of, of martial art, if not, you know, uh, I try not to use the word combat sport, you know, because I don't, I don't, and I don't want to get down a rant, but I don't see those kind of relating a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. A no rule, yeah. a no rules type of application in fighting, uh, but mixing those three together and bringing that to the table. And you're absolutely right about, you know, the med kits and what you can take and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we generally go uh, to Disney. I know that's kind of odd or whatever, but you know, sometimes on vacation, and location like Disney has a very strict policy when it comes to you know no weapons on the grounds everybody goes through security screening you know all that kind of stuff the the pulse nightclub shooter actually screened disney um that came out from his wife afterwards she she told the investigators and he was attempting to um he was attempting to bring in a, a rifle uh ak-47 in a stroller and he saw that it was too um too stringent you know as far as the actual screening so he decided against it to pick another target I will tell you this, though, going through security there many times, one thing that I always bring in is some type of med kit, you know, and it generally will have a tourniquet. It'll have, you know, chest seals. It'll have pressure bandage, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times they don't even blink when they look at it or someone with some type of prior service or, you know, law enforcement, whatever. will look at it and go, oh, OK, cool. You know, a tourniquet or whatever. And they'll be like, just keep on going through. So I say that because if you're operating some type of non-permissive environment and you can't carry some type of weapon, Generally, I've never been to a location where they're like, no, 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 you can't bring in med supplies. That's generally never an issue. Even traveling out of the country and going to places, it's generally never an issue. And getting on a plane, it's not an issue. So I think it's just, um, again, this will be bold to say, I think it's a laziness thing. I think people, it's sexy to pay for a shooting class. It's not sexy to pay for a med class. And that's the reality. People professionally or you know, um, prepared citizen, they don't want to do it. And I know for me, I saw it a lot here, man. Um, like the military or law enforcement, we weren't given med kits unless you're on deployment, like overseas on actual like combat operations. Like in Canada, in training, we weren't provided medical kit. So guys became complacent. It just wasn't part of their kit. And then on the law enforcement side, again, depending on what agency you're with and what funding is, my uh, agency, we didn't even get issued tourniquets, man. And I bought an IFAC and I built my own and I carried it on my belt. And I got like to the point of, they were going to reprimand me for breaching dress policy because it wasn't issued. That's like insanity to me. So I fought them every day and I'm like, yeah, you know, go screw yourself. I don't really care. And then I'll tell you what, dude, the amount of calls I've been to where a medicals happen, I'm the only guy showing up with a med kit. And like you said, the paramedics, we didn't let them in. I'm just still fighting someone or, you know, we're securing the scene or, or like you said, God forbid, by the time we do let the paramedics in, that person's already expired. And I'm like, well, I had a med kit on me, but everyone else is caring about policy or they're so focused on what our next weapon system is we have to carry and train with but medical gets dumped every time and it's just insane to me that people do that um when you have the luxury to do like buy medical buy training 
I, I saw, you know, in my personal experience, especially when it comes to law enforcement, was the ability to be a super consumer was very real. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times some new toy or some new tool was going to fix all of the tactical doctrine. And I disagreed vehemently with that and said, no, training is going to fix this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got a good pair of boots and you've got a good rifle, let's start with that. Um, let's work our way because, you know, it's always going to be, you know, skill set versus versus tools. It's, it's always going to be your, you know, software over hardware mm -hmm. on this kind of deal. If you've got a guy who knows what he's doing and you train them thoroughly, it doesn't matter what you put in their hands, more than likely. Now, some things obviously will give them advantage. We understand that. But more than likely, they're going to perform that mission just through their understanding and knowledge alone, no matter what the tool is. And so that, that obviously was an issue. And even the medical was, you know, something that was put on the back burner. And I, I thought that that was, um, that was kind of crazy to me that that was occurring. And, uh, you know, obviously vocally making the push of saying, hey, we need this. This is what we're going to get. This is what we're going to do. Every person needs to have this. You know, we're going to do a train the trainer where, you know, guys know how to perform these basic skills. And then we only rely on our medics to be able to do higher echelon skills, you know, and, and doing that. And there's still a lot of guys that, you know, you talk about like placement of gear, something that's so simple, you know, you get your eye back and a lot of people are, you know, where they put it and what's in it or whatever. And, you know, my personal view, the way I have it is a lot of people would probably kind of laugh at it because like, well, where's this or where's that? Okay. Well, here's the issue. If it's the front of my body, I'm going to go with a very low profile system, you know, because I'm not going to perform surgery on myself. If I'm hit mm -hmm. more than likely, that's not going to occur. The best chance that I have, if I'm hitting the extremities, I will apply a tourniquet or tourniquets depending on the situation. And I will probably be able to get a chest seal on or, you know, even a trauma bandage if I need to. But as far as doing a needle decompression on myself, never heard of anybody doing one on themselves no. before. Maybe it is. If somebody knows, I've, send me yeah, that. I've never heard of I would that love either. to read that. <laughs> So, you know, all this type of gear should be then repositioned. Mm -hmm. I like to run on the front of my kit, basically what I call a blowout kit. You know, I've got the ability to stop bleeding and I can treat immediate life threats like that. It's going to be a bandage. It's going to be a tourniquet. And it's going to be a chest seal, if not more than one. Uh, but for the other stuff, that's going to be higher echelon care. You know, that's going to go on the rear of the body so that someone who's coming up to me who is trained can use that on me because mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to be conscious enough to do those things or even know what's going on while that treatment's taking place. Or I'm going to need someone who has their complete uh, faculties about them and then are not injured to perform that for me. You know, that's what I need there. Um, but we see a lot of that, you know, a lot of IFACs out there just have a bunch of stuff just shoved in them. And, you know, and here's the problem. I didn't like being told, uh, you know, especially when I got out of the military and then look at training where people would tell me, well, uh, you're not a cop and you're not military. There's no reason we can't teach you this. We can't show you this. I was like, well, it's really not classified. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you're not going to show yeah. like any of this is open knowledge if you want to find it somewhere. But they had this kind of, uh, you know, this arrogance about it. You can't learn that. You can't have that. So I try not to bring that to the table. But I will say that when it comes to medical things, um, there are certain medical procedures that you're going to need to have a particular level of training and professionalism to perform. You know, you wouldn't go and say, well, I, I can't really afford a doctor. I'll let my buddy, you know, uh, perform surgery on me. 
Yeah. A lot of people would probably say, no, I'm probably yeah. not going to do that, you know. <laughs> but when it comes time to an IFAC, you know, we're completely fine of saying, okay, well, this guy took a TCCC class five years ago, and he put a needle into a dummy. So we're going to let him carry that. And now he's going to perform a needle decompression in a back alley somewhere on someone who's actually injured in a dynamic environment, whatever. Honestly, that's not realistic. No. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want that to happen or do we want to? So um, we really have to say, if, if you want to operate at a certain level, just like with everything else, you need to be attaining that level and keeping that level uh, of training professional and whatever. Do I say, oh, well, you need to be doing this full time. You need to be, you know, this or whatever. To, no, no, but you have to take that responsibility. I feel the same way when a person carries a gun. You know, if you're not someone who is out there training and really looking at realistic applications of gunfighting or whatever, then I would be super hesitant for you to pull that gun around me in that environment and, and be operating with that. Because I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know where the hits are going to be. I don't know what the collateral damage is going to happen. And, and obviously you are responsible for that. You can't take the bullet back. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, am I capable of operating at that level, whether it's violence, whether it's medical or whatever aspect that it is. And that takes a lot of self-searching and it takes a lot of uh, humility to say, I'm not really at the level I should be doing that. And I should be pursuing, you know, this, I should be getting better at it. So. Yeah. It's, it's just crazy that, um, even again on the professional side, medical, this seems to be something that gets dumped or like you said, they'll find a piece of gear and they think that, um, replaces training. And I know, from the military, right? I like we had like belt kit or a chest rig or plate carrier, but when you switch to LE, all all we had was an external plate carrier. They were very controlled with what I could put on it, so I had most of my crap on my belt. So I bought the Blue Force gear, um, mini like IFAC thing on the belt. I had that, but it was totally marked and identifiable. So either like you said, you could see me from behind and be like, oh, there's his IFAC, right? Like that's what it's for. So I think like there has to be that form of at least a baseline, like understanding, okay, you have to have it clearly marked. But in, in, like you said, in relation to what you're carrying, where, like that shouldn't be a thing. Cause they tried to bandaid it and say, okay, everyone put in your left cargo pocket. I'm like, yeah, but what, what if I don't want that in my left cargo pocket? Having a tourniquet and combat guys, what if something happens to my leg and I can't get to that now? You know what I mean? It's not marked, but again, they didn't give us any training. They literally didn't even show us how to put on a tourniquet. They just gave it to us in a bag. And one thing, a combat guys, they're like, oh, you're good. And that was just their solution, right? Like you said, the gear thing. They're like, well, we're going to buy it for 600 officers and we're covered now. And that's that. honestly, that, and sadly, that's pretty normal, especially in your more uh, rural areas. You know, the smaller the department, the worse that seems to, to get. And even here, you know, locally, here's just a kind of a case of, of instances that I've had. Um, you know, we make sure, especially in the, in the, like the professional medical pre-hospital community, we try to, we actually are called upon to teach a lot of law enforcement officers. You know, they'll bring us in to teach certain stuff, whether it's like Narcan administration or bleeding control, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there is that aspect. And then we also, obviously for myself, I have a lot of law enforcement officers who come to sell us classes and get into those and want to go higher and, and learn more stuff. But, you know, I, I saw evidences where I'll get out on a scene and I see a guy with gear on and there's no med on him whatsoever. And I'm like, hey, man, where's your where's your tourniquet at? I know that you have them. I was there when they were issued. We did training. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's in the car. OK, well, what's the chances? If, yeah, if you get hit, what's your chances of making it back to the car? Um, you know, there was another incident where there was one particular agency that 
like you said, would not allow them to wear tourniquets because it was not viewed as being part of the dress policy. They didn't like, but this same agency wanted to do a female empowerment. So they sent female officers to go to this conference and when they came back, they requested pink handcuffs. So my my agency said, did that too. If you're a female and you wanted to yeah. support a cancer thing, you could rock pink handcuffs. But I got told no tourniquet. There you go. And so they were like, "Yeah, of course you can. You, you this is inclusive. You can have, uh, you know, this female pride." Which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a woman. Obviously, I'm just saying that, you know, it's not a priority. Good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah, yeah. And if you can if you can skimp on this, by God, if if life saving things, we should. Um, you know, a couple other things that I see is that, you know, with, even with the branded tourniquets, I, I'm a cat guy, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so am I. I, I yeah, so am that's I. What, yeah. They're the best. They've been proven to be the best. Yeah, I, I can't reinvent the wheel. You know, I'm not sponsored by North American Rescue at all. I do have friends that work for them and, and, you know, I, I do buy a ton of gear from them or whatever. But the thing is, is that I know that the cat's going to work. You know, I've used them many times on individuals and have seen them, you know, never fail, never had an issue with that. But then I look at the other, even stuff that's COTSI approved. And, and if you're listening to this and you don't know about COTSI or whatever, it's simply, it's the Council on uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care. And it's a group of doctors and medical professionals that they give guidance on best practices. They're, they're not the law. They're not the rule. They just give guidance on best practices. And Katsi will review gear and they'll say, okay, we support these because they are showing data, you know, evidence-based medicine that they're going to work. And Katsi even has, you know, multiple recommendations for tourniquets. And one of the other ones, you know, we see is a soft wide. And even I've seen failures with the soft wides. And one of the big problems about them is that one of the things that law enforcement officers like to do is since it doesn't fold as neatly as the cat does, they will take it and they'll, you know, press it real close together and then put rubber bands or ranger bands around it to hold it compressed. Well, the issue is, is that when you now take that apart to go use it, you have bands on it, which how are you going to deploy it one hand now? You know, we always should be teaching and practicing the one-handed application of tourniquets for ourselves if we're hit. And um, how, so number one, how are you going to deploy it? The second thing is once you get those bands off, since it's been compressed like that, the actual nylon band develops a crease in it. And if you want to, you could try this out at home if you have one, you know, store it like that for a while, pull it out, and then go to try to now apply it. Whenever that crease goes through the buckle, it wants to hang and stop. You can't pull any more out of it. So from what I've seen in the real world is most of the applications of that tourniquet have all been loose. You'll get to them and it'll look like spaghetti on top of it because they turn the windlass a thousand times trying to get the inner band to tighten because the initial pull never got the slack out of it. And so a lot of times, and this is what I've had to do, you know, on patients that were applied, you know, law enforcement applied tourniquet, was actually cut that tourniquet off and go higher than that and put a cat on it, you know, to get it where it needs to be. And so, again, you need to test your gear and uh, ensure that it is what you think that you need to be running and make sure that it's applicable. I, I like to throw problems at everything I have, you know, gear-wise, tactics-wise, whatever you want to talk. And the reason being is because we got to be honest with ourselves. And if, if we're throwing a problem and the gear or the, you know, doctrine is failing, then instead of fortifying that failure, we need to be backing up and making a change on it. We need to be flexible enough to say, hey, that didn't work. Let's get better. Let's go move on to something else. And our gear definitely is one of those things that, you know, I, I hate to put it as simple and I hate to be, you know, kind of whatever about it. But 
you know, med gear is something that has been tested and it literally, like the lessons are written in blood, you know what I mean? Um, it, it's, it's something that they, uh, people have lived there or died because of how well that it's worked. And so why are we still ignoring that particular data and just continuing on with it? You know, the, we, the, day, the homework's been done for us on that. We, we can go ahead and take those recommendations and best practices and move forward, you know, so. Especially like out of the uniform for the everyday um, prepared man, you can make your own SOP. You can do your best practice. You can figure out what works for you. Whereas, again, like the example I used, and even the department you said, it comes down to uh, politics. It comes down. It comes down to money, and and money's not even a thing because if if I was working a place where they said we don't have any money straight up to provide any medical training or provide you with gear. But if you take medical training, we'll give you time off. If you wear medical gear, we'll let you wear it. We'll do whatever you want. But the fact that some of these agencies are so dead set against med because they're like, well, we're not medical professionals. I'm like, then why am I carrying a firearm? Why am I responding to some of these calls? Like, like we said earlier, where I'm going to beat, where I'm going to beat uh, emergency services there. And then now you're just looking at me like, oh, well, we don't have, you know, whatever training. So it's fine. It's just a weird complacency thing. But again, for the people not in uniform, medical is a priority. Medical is something you should really kind of care about, especially if you're carrying a firearm. For sure. And, you know, the thing is, is, is I've had, you know, I've had individuals tell me, well, you know, no one has sent me to that training. You know, uh, well, no one has, has, you know, allowed me to do this or whatever. The thing is, as a, as a just your person yourself, that's your responsibility. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be your agency's responsibility to train you. It shouldn't be your department's uh, responsibility or whatever. You know, that's on you to go take your time off and go take classes and go find it. And it's out there, you know. Um, now, there's different levels and degrees of, of training that you can find uh, and that you can get a hold of. But a lot of it's out there if we, if we choose, choose to, you know, to look for it. And as far as just everyday people, you know, hopefully now, we're getting into that place. Uh, and one of the biggest reasons that I, I started Cellus was that, you know, back before I got into doing pre-hospital medicine, I was working in the gun business. You know, I was, I was a gunsmith and, uh, you know, all the time was coming into contact with people of all walks of life. And a lot of these people were more defense minded, I guess is the best way to put it. They wanted to carry, they wanted to train or whatever. And I was talking to these people and saying, okay, yeah. And I would even help with firearms training or whatever. And, Back in those days, especially if you look at the evolution of social media, especially Instagram, you know, you, you would see that back in the 2015, 2016, you know, this was the days of, you know, these massive blow ups on this and that and these, you know, all these accounts and all the garbage a lot of times that get spewed. And uh, there was a lot of information that was really hard to choose from mm -hmm. because it, it wasn't really what was best. It was what was trendy. It was what was cool. And we, we see that that's perpetual. That happens all the time. Um, even now, you know, to, uh, thankfully, we've moved into a time where people are starting to look more grassroots on things. They're starting to look more at the softer application of skills as far as survival, bushcraft, you know, foraging, all that. I, I think it's amazing that one of the accounts I follow shows that they're going into the military and teaching foraging skills and how to process game. Mm -hmm. You know, back when I was in, you know, 15, 18, almost 20 years ago, that would have been insane to think that somebody, a civilian at that, would be coming in and teaching skills like that to these to these individuals or to us. So um, thankfully that that's happening, you know, we, but we have to be careful 
to keep that proper momentum and to not let one of the, the worst problems I see is, is that consumerism, just like I saw in law enforcement departments. Um, you now see that in you know social media. It's always been there. It just rears its ugly head whenever any type of movement starts getting traction, where it's buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this, where it's like, nah, don't, don't do that. Uh, train. Yeah. There's got to be a better way. You know, we, we got by, you know, man fought and did it really well before automatic weapons. Man fought and did really well before night vision. Man fought and did really well before GPS. You know, now obviously technology has a place in our skill set. I'm not, not saying that it doesn't. And whenever you try to say something about technology and about the consuming of that technology, people want to jump all over you about it. Well, what about this? Well, what, you know, the old saying, if, if, if my, you know, what if, if, if my, if I, if my aunt had a dick, she'd be my uncle. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the, yeah. The, the problem is, is that we can, what about everything to death? But we need to be focusing on that skill set. We need to be working on getting better. You know, yes. Okay. If you want to own a GPS, outstanding on a GPS. However, what about a compass? Do you know how to navigate? Do you know how to read a map? Do you know how to plot grids? Do you know how to triangulate locations? Do you know how to do a uh, terrain association with mapping, micro and macro terrain association, uh, dead reckoning, anchor points, you know, all these things that are very important in the concept of navigating. If you didn't put any precedence on that and you just went and bought a GPS, yes, I would now have a device that tells me exactly where on the earth I am if there are GPS satellites in availability that are working. And I could put in another point and say, take me here. And it will say, great, here's a straight line <laughs> that's going to get you to this point in space. The rest is up to you. But I hadn't talked about, hey, well, I can't go because there's a, a river that's impassable, you know, four kilometers in front of me. I'm going to have to circumnavigate that or talk about the concept of, hey, this is going to take you directly through a defile, which is going to be the perfect place for you to get ambushed. Mm -hmm. You know, those things are not considered. So I look at the same thing with all the other technology. You know, it has to be one of those things where we are having to make sure that the tactics determine the tools, not the other way around. We have to make sure that the, the, that the, the, the software, the person who's able to do it is there first, and then we move and we supplement that with hardware. And honestly, again, we have to take that. We have to throw our problems at it. You know, you've got to make sure if you want to run technology, how are you going to keep it in motion? You know, well, there's batteries everywhere. There are, there are batteries everywhere. I understand that. What is your availability on those batteries? How often can you resupply that? Can you recharge them? What happens? Batteries have a shelf life, you know, and a lot of people, well, I'm not going to be in that type of event. Don't come around telling me that you're not going to be doing something because I learned the hard way. You learned the hard way. A lot of people have. When we said we weren't going to do something, we got taught a lesson on that. Mm -hmm. And so you never know what you're going to be operating with or how, and you need to be able to be flexible in that doctrine and use the things that you have. And one of the things I, I really tried to do is if I have a piece of kit that I say, well, I couldn't do it without this kit, that's a bad place to be. If I could not take anything that I have and lose it, bury it, toss it, and walk away from it, that's an issue, right? Because that shows how we're sticking to an item and our survival is revolving around that item instead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, we should be able to pick up anything that we can and try to improvise as long as we can until we can improve our position, until we can improve our, our station and our protective posture with that. So I, I, anybody out there would say, no matter what you're being told about consuming and having to buy and having to do this, you, you need to be comfortable saying, no, you know, I think I'll just get training 
and then I'll figure out if that tool is going to work within my tactics. And if we started being a little bit more level-headed about that, I think that we would see a lot more growth. But if not, again, we're going to continue to repeat that concept of, well, if I just buy this, I'll be fine. That's all I got to do. I got to buy this and I'll, I'll make it. You know, I'll, I'll buy the GPS because, hey, you know, I, oh, I've got the GPS. Everybody else is going to be lost. Hey, I'll just buy the nods because, you know what, I may have no understanding of, of tactical doctrine. Uh, I can't survive. I can't patch a bullet hole. I, I couldn't put two sticks together in the woods and do anything, but I'll be able to see at night. I'll kill you. I'll, you can't <laughs> see at night and I can. I'm like, man, that's not the conversation. That's not even the argument that's being had there, you know. So. I think it's just again, it's it's ignorance and it's equally to blame, um, uh, like social media and consumerism. I mean, we live in a day and age where it's it's cool to like like everything and share, but just like we said, how many people are actually, you know, um, signing up for whatever course or signing up their family for whatever course? That's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So, for some of the training you're doing on your own with Sealus, and you have it to open to anyone, do you have like a minimum age, or like would you let like? And I'm not saying super young kids, but again, because you're just not tactical, like you're the bigger picture. Would you like to train like a teenager in some of this medical? Yes, we have. Uh, we do and we have. That's awesome. And so that's awesome, man. Basically, what? I, well, well, I appreciate that. And, and I believe in a family first um, doctrine. Oh, 100 percent. That, that's awesome, man. No, I, I just I have a question after you, you say why, because it's sure, good to hear sure. that you're doing it for kids. Well, and that's the thing is the way I look at it is a lot of times if we're going to get into trouble and you have a family, that's who's going to be around. Yep. And, uh, you know, we, we have that bad habit where we tell the women and the wives and sometimes the husbands, depending on, you know, uh, sometimes our wives are more, you know, into it than men. I've <laughs> seen that before. And they're just like, well, she doesn't need a gun. I'll take care of her. And I'm like, bro, <laughs> things go down like you. you what are you, Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston? Like, you, <laughs> yeah, you need, you need all hands you need on deck. In the fight. Yeah, you need all hands yeah, on you deck right now. In the fight. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it's going to be family combatants, mm -hmm. right? We, we need yep. to be able to tell your kid needs to know where to go, what to do. Hey, I need you to do this now. Um, you know, you should have even a kind of rehearsed concept mm -hmm. with your family of saying, hey, if I say this particular thing, I need you guys to start locking into gear and this is what we're going to do, you know. Um, and there's a whole different, we're going to be firing on a whole different set of cylinders at that point on time. And that way they're not sitting there, what, what do I need to do? What's going on? Asking a million questions of saying, hey, no, we, this is what we do. Muscle memory, let's roll. And so I, I like bringing that in. And a lot of times what I do is that, you know, if you sign up for a class with us, you get to bring a family member for free. Oh, that's awesome, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. So why would you like not? A spouse, a spouse or a kid? Right. Yeah. Why would you kid not? Or whatever. Yeah. That's awesome, man. And I'll, I'll tell them about the age is that it's really up to you. If you mm -hmm. think that they're mature enough to handle the content, bring them. I'm not going to like change, change the content. It. Yeah. yeah. Just cause mm -hmm. they're there, you know, but you have to, you have to take that in stride and see if they're ready for it or not. And some of the ones that are younger, man, they have a blast. You know, oh, I yeah. could imagine when I was, when I was a kid, if my dad was taking me to classes and we were, you know, taking real chunks of meat and, and wound packing, mm -hmm. or we were out tracking or whatever, I would have loved that. Yeah, you know, exactly. So no, that's super awesome, man, and that's why I wanted to ask because I know, um, again, I know it's different in every every state or even in every province in Canada. But um, I tried to get my son signed up for a first aid course, and he was twelve at the time. And Red Cross in Canada would only let him do like the 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 BS uh, level A babysitter course. And I said, no, I want him to do CPR level C. And they're like, well, he has to be sixteen. I'm like, why? 
Like, give me a reason why he can't do it. And then their explanation via the phone was, well, most 12-year-olds can only handle the babysitter level. So I laughed and said, well, my 12-year-old can do more. So I want him to do level C. I don't know why you're limiting what he's allowed to retain because so what? I'm going to pay you twice. He's going to do a babysitter course for one day, level A, uh, CPR and first aid, which is a joke. And then I'm going to make him do level C later. Like that makes no sense. I'm like, he can comprehend it now. So that's why I wanted to ask because you don't see that man often where people are including – Again, like 12 is not super young, but like younger kids or they're including their spouse. And I like you brought up the shooting thing because that's that's the biggest thing now where guys are like they'll spend the money on training for themselves. But they're like, well, my woman doesn't need that or my woman doesn't need a gun. And she's got me. I'm like, that's that's insane, dude. There's four people in your house. You all need some form of training. This week's episode is brought to you by FieldSeats.com. FieldSeats.com is an e-commerce federally licensed firearms dealer. They provide virtual reviews on brand new firearms, optics, and gear. Or at the end of the review, they give away the item being reviewed to an attendee. Currently, they've got reviews ranging from the Shao Systems MR920 for $35, the Springfield M1A for $65, or Chuchicon ACOG with RMR for $60. Each review has limited seating, so your chances of winning the giveaway are that much higher. Check out FieldSeats.com to purchase your reviews and enter to win the item being reviewed. And use code STRONGMEN to get 10% off your order. Be sure to check out their Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Field underscore Seats for updates on products and other tips and info. Use code STRONGMEN to receive 10% off your entire purchase at FieldSeats.com. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks for listening, guys. Now back to the episode. Stay in the fight. And honestly, too, one of the biggest things I've seen is that a lot of times the the wife, the female, whoever, they don't want to train because it's not geared towards them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not a big proponent. There's, I see a lot of companies, especially in America, they do like, oh, it's a women's firearm class, yeah. you know. And I'm like, I'll be honest with you, that is sexist. Uh, and I'm not even a person to use that word. <laughs> what you're What you're saying is that women are so... Uh, not capable of performance that we have you got to lower the standard. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we got to give their own special inclusion class mm-hmm. for that. And I'm like, nah, this is equal opportunity. We're all going to get out here together. We're all going to learn together. And, uh, you know, they they feel like, and I'll be honest with you, I, I think that a lot, a lot of times men are more geared towards the mission, so to speak, in quotes, because that's part of their natural drive mm-hmm. as a man. You know what I mean? You, a lot of us obviously are born with instinct to, you know, beat on our chest and protect the village wall. That's kind of ingrained to us from a young age. But females are obviously more, uh, for the most part, obviously the nurture type of application where they just, they don't, their mind doesn't kind of gravitate towards that. They don't think in those type of terms or whatever. And unfortunately, it's probably one of the reason where, you know, females make up most of our violent statistics, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to the application of, of them either witnessing or being, the victim of violence. Um, so I'm like, you know, let's don't do that. Let's, let's give them a mission. Let's make them, let's help them understand whether you're doing it for your kids, you're doing it for yourself for self-preservation. Let's, let's, let's provide that path forward. And it doesn't have to be women specific. It can be, everybody learns about this and everybody moves forward with this. And so a lot of times we do, we have females that come in and they will perform excellently in classes. Once you psychologically give them a reason to operate, mm-hmm. they generally will pick up and operate at the same, if not exceeding the level to the man to the left and right of them. That's awesome. Um, and some of the some of the best shooters you see generally are, are women. Is, a lot of them now. A lot of the competition shooters, they're women, and they could kick dudes' asses. Yeah, that's right. 
that's exactly right. Yeah, and, um, so that's that's kind of cool to see that, you know. No, and it, it's awesome, dude. That like like you said, you're not you're not separating, you're not excluding, you're not saying this is mill only, this is le only. You're like, no, you have a pulse and you're a human. You can take a class, and I'm going to teach you some stuff. I re- I refuse to do uh, mill only or le only classes. That's I awesome. Refuse. I will not I will not lock off, and I will not tell someone no. You can't do this because you're not this. I've even be, been approached to teach classes for departments, and they're like, yeah, but we can't have civilians in here. You're like, I'm no, your I'm not your guy. That's awesome, man. No, no like super super respect, Lance. So. That, that's solid. That, like That's something you're holding down. And like I said, dude, it's rare now. You don't see it. Everyone's just trying to make a dollar or, oh, yeah, I'll make a women version. Or, yeah, I'll make one for kids. I'm like, w- like what? So what, this 13-year-old can't comprehend what this 30-year-old can? Like that doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> That's exactly right. And, you know, that's that's where it is. And a lot of times we see um, some of the uh, some of the guys that work professionally in fields, mm-hmm. whether it's law enforcement or whatever. I've seen it with my own eyes that a lot of times they are hesitant to perform because they refuse to let anyone see them fail. Yes, I've, I've seen that. You, <laughs> and when you're that type of person, you terrify me. Mm-hmm. If you cannot fail in training, because that's where it's supposed to take place, um, you know, the old saying, you know, uh, amateurs practice until they get it right, professionals practice until they get it wrong, and then they fix it. I'm a firm believer in that. And when you won't operate to the level that your wheels come off, then I don't really know how to take you. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what you're about. You're not an actual uh, professional at that point. To, that's true. <laughs> That's right. I want I want people to see me miss on the range, and they'd be like, "Well, that guy missed." Yeah, but he was going at two hundred miles an hour to, and he found a failure point. Mm-hmm. He did the feedback on it, and now he's going to fix why, and now he's going to improve upon that. And uh, collectively, we have to be doing that because you know, training in general, we always train at what we're already good at. You ever yeah. notice that? Yeah. So I had this discussion okay. with uh, with Chris Cook from Odyssey. He's just got a shooting company in utah and he was saying that as well that that's his biggest takeaway he tells people is people want to train what they're good at not what they suck at so he tells people no no sign up for something you're not good at because everyone wants to do what they're really good at but you're never going to progress that's right get outside that comfort zone yeah and so with me man the reason really the biggest reason that i started solace was because during that time of seeing these trends and these fads or whatever it became apparent that here in the States, you couldn't spit without hitting a, a guat vet that was teaching a basic rifle class. Yeah, like they're everywhere. They're everywhere. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Or, or some off-duty cops sure. training intro to pistol. <laughs> sure, sure. And and my thing is, like, I, I don't have a problem with that. It, that's more people, that's more force multipliers get out there and train or whatever. But when I looked around, I was like, okay, well, what else is going on? Like, there's, there's other skill sets. You know, and this really come from my time in the military that I thought being in the military, they were going to teach me like all kind of legit stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I go to training and I'm like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? You know, um, did you guys do and, a TCCC in the know, Marine Corps back then when you were in or was that later on in the GWAT TCCC? That was actually up? that was before. Yeah. When when I was doing it in the Marine Corps, we actually had the combat lifesaver. Program OK. Yeah. The old one. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so I didn't do TCCC until I got out and was doing it on my own. Uh, okay. You know, and, and actually, yeah, and actually did that. And then I went through a spell where um, I was actually working for, I live in Georgia, mm-hmm. and so I was working for the state um, teaching TECC, which is the Tactical Emergency uh, Casualty Care, which is more 
in gear for like citizens, you know, over like war. That yeah. uh, citizens, uh, paramedics, firefighters, okay. cops, okay, all that whole that whole concept. Very much the same, but it doesn't go into uh, care under fire, like uh, or like some. St- well, no, no, it does oh. care under fire. It doesn't go into um, prolonged field. Care. Oh, okay. It doesn't go into you know, uh, administration of meds okay. afterwards and how to do a complete packaging of patient transport, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, it's basically meant to do active killer situations and the immediate response. Doing a handoff to, to a paramedic. Okay. That kind of stuff. That's right. But um, so yeah, I'm watching all this stuff. And I'm like, okay. And obviously working in the gun business, I have a lot of people who are like, hey, man, you know, uh, I'm looking. And I was like, well, and I taught a lot of people. I did private lessons teaching, you know, taught people, uh, you know, pistol, rifle, whatever they wanted to learn. And, you know, I enjoy teaching that kind of stuff. I still enjoy teaching that now. I sometimes help. I got a good buddy of mine who runs a company called Remnant Group. If you haven't heard of him, look, he's, he's a super great guy. And uh, I'll go often and help him teach classes because to me it's fun to do i enjoy doing that and i learn something every time i watch somebody else do something you know but for the most part i was like that's that's not what i want to get in there i I need to i need to find something else and i started thinking about all these skill sets that i thought were severely neglected and that's what i went after so i kind of walked away from the training uh like the guns the gun side yeah yeah, you know, because everybody's doing that yeah. or whatever. I, nah, I got to move away from that. I want to go in the opposite direction of where this train's headed to see what's out there. And that's where I really hit the whole, you know, hey, we need to be doing survival. We need to be doing bushcraft. We need to be doing tracking. We need to be doing land nav. You know, we need to be doing all of these skills that have really, you know, 200 years ago, people were innately good at this because it was relevant to their survival. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I'll tell people in the survival courses. It's like, I didn't make any of this stuff up. You know, I, I didn't invent this. Like people have been just doing this through the evolution of who lived and died for the last thousands of years, and this is where we got to on this. Um, but it's just that we don't we don't have it in touch with that. We don't see that on a daily basis or have to rely on it. So a lot of times that um, you know we're not capable of of harnessing that and doing it. And so that's all it is, is is bringing back those old skills. And I'm a huge proponent of that. I love reading any type of anecdotal stuff from, you know, guys or whoever that have survived somewhere, you Mm -hmm. know, throughout the ages. Um, And you look at like dudes like Frederick Russell Burnham, Mm -hmm. if you've never heard of this guy, Uh, he's amazing. And the, the, you know, he started off as a young child and, you know, he he actually uh, is in Michigan and uh, the local Native Americans there were on a war party. And this was in like the early 1860s or whatever. So the Civil War was actually going on at the time. And they burnt his homestead and his mother was there with him by herself. And she went and buried him under green corn shucks so that he would not catch on fire and had to go run and hide and then come back and get him afterwards. So this dude is growing up hard from an early age. You know? <laughs> And he went on to, you know, become a, a world-renowned tracker. And he was hired by militaries. He went and spent time in Africa, you know, fighting in the wars there and, and uh, you know, and, and what would become Rhodesia and all these other locations. And, you know, learning about that, how he tracked at nighttime on all fours, literally on hands and knees with no moon, putting his hands into horse hoof imprints. And realizing which one rider he was looking at because there was a, a slight crack in the horse's hoof and he could feel that in the track. So he's tracking one horse out of a group of many out in the pitch black on hands and knees. 
Now, I'm not advocating that practice and saying that's what you should be doing because there's a lot of dangers of tracking at night and doctrine and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting to see what people have done before us. Yeah, and, and almost how far we've gone, that. like the other end now. Like you said, the GPS is the prime example. People want to buy it, but they don't even know how to like orient a map to the north. <clears throat> For sure. And you got to be extremely careful with any technology because I'm even guilty of it myself. I, I try to limit my screen time mm. as much as I can. And the reason being is because we have proven that the more that you look down at a phone, the more that you are doing that, you start losing the ability to have enhanced observation. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your long range, short range observation skills, your ability to pick up on detail, you know, all that stuff starts degrading the more time you spend on screen. So if you're listening to this, I would tell you for sure, take time, put the phone down, walk away from it, go outside, go observe, go touch grass, touch snow. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and even look up, you know, drills or mm -hmm. daily drills to improve eyesight, you know, focusing on short and distant targets and actually, you know, trying to harness that observation skill back and work on even smell, smell, hearing, all that kind of stuff. We can become attuned. And you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember being in the military or being out in field exercises and, you know, you're out there for a couple of weeks at a time. And then all of a sudden you can smell like the whiff of perfume. Yeah. But you it's like yeah. miles away back to where there's normal people. Yeah. And yeah. you become so attuned to being in the field at that time, you know, cigarette smoke, campfire smoke or whatever, it's it's just like a stark reality to what the, the normal environment is. And, you know, we need to try to keep in touch with that as much as we can and, and try because it is a skill set on its own. Did you guys ever do you know, Did you guys ever do Kim's games in your unit? Okay, so it's great that you said that. So I do that with my kids. We <laughs> we specifically did not do Kim's, but I was very familiar with the concept, and it's something that I use now in all our tracking classes. Because in the tracking classes, we do enhance observation. It's like the beginning mm -hmm. of the class, because I believe if you can't observe, you're not going to track well. Yeah. And uh, we do an observation stand where we have a big cone that goes out away from you, and there's going to be like 20 to 25 items in that area. You are know? they all are they and all the that, same theme for for your observation? No, they're not. They are actually random objects. Okay. You know, one can be like an old cell phone, a canteen cap, you know, a boot, whatever. You're doing that the hard way. Staying. You're doing it really hard. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, it's surprising because a lot of people go out there and they'll hit like okay. So we do it before. Yep. Right. Yeah. They yeah. Go out there yeah. And they do yeah. it. They do it cold and they look and they write down everything they see because they have a time limit. And I tell them you observe at different levels, standing, kneeling, you know, prone or whatever. And then we'll go through teaching at AMPS observation, let them come back, and the number that they find exponentially increases. Yeah. Now, in, yeah. The, in the past, I have done similar Kim's games where I developed, say, for instance, a, a folder. And on the, the folder, when you open it up, I've taken items and either taped or glued them in. Mm -hmm. So it just opens up in a flap and you have, you know, 20 seconds to look at it and memorize it and then close it. Mm -hmm. And then try to recall, you know, what it is that you saw or remember it because... I'm a very big believer in active recall, yeah. you know, um, yeah. in dynamic situations, a lot of times we lose the ability to process data mm -hmm. and it's extremely dangerous for us, right? Because we need to be able to, even though things are heavy and hot or whatever and what's going on, I need to be able to look down at a table and see a particular item that's relevant to data, that's relevant to the mission, and then continue to move on remembering what it is that I saw even afterwards. Because once we start looking at the concept, that's why I'm such a large proponent of tracking to begin with, is because our combat operations should be heavily supported by the ability to hunt, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And that's, I think, what we forgot. Yep. We forgot that going after guys and try to kill them is actually hunting. 
we tried to make some sterile disconnect between that and that doesn't work for us and um we found out the hard way obviously in the last you know 20 years that that a lot of people had to pay the price in blood because of that and we still do uh in law enforcement operations one of the things that um i enjoyed the most was manhunts you know mm -hmm. fugitive recovery yeah. and actually going yeah. out in deep because i live in a very rural environment um going out into that rural environment and literally having to hunt that person and that is the most dangerous game um and that is you know you, you have to be on point when you're doing that kind of stuff and you know all the details all the data points to what's going on and that's the beauty of tracking you start off with a single disturbance in the natural state and then we're following up we're confirming you know that we actually have uh you know our sign that is this actually definite sign this is what we're looking for and then in my mind i'm going to continue to follow them i'll watch their gait and watch their pattern their footwear everything about them the way that they grab a hold of a handhold and make a certain rub uh, a certain wear in the shoe you know that tells me something about them and what i try to do is i try to build that person up in my mind i'm, I'm literally building them from the foot up because if I can start tracking them long enough, hopefully I can get to a point where I start figuring out what they're going to do before they know what they're going to do. My objective is to think like they're going to think and predict where they're going to be, how they're going to be, uh, and learn how to, or obviously plan to interdict and, and make something happen there. And that's the beauty of tracking. And it can go just as absolutely deep and esoteric as you want it to. That's fine if you want to do that. But at the same time, it's it's not hokey. There's a, a definite science to it that works. So no, that's super awesome, man. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm glad you obviously you guys are doing the Kim's games. And um, for the for the people listening who are confused on what a Kim's game is, I just I looked it up while we were speaking on the actual kind of history behind it. Um, so it's from a book called Kim. Did you know that as well, Lance? It's from a book. Yes, yeah, it's a, a Rudyard Kipling yeah, yeah, uh, book. Yeah, and um, the, the man played it with a child. Yeah, he played it with a child, and it was very, well, like, he was a British guy, and the kid was a slave. Like, I'm just going to call it like it is, and he was in India. Sure. And he played a game sure. with him, and um, he'd make him memorize jewels, and then whenever the kid would memorize these jewels, he'd feed him. The kid was poor. And then during the war, when the war broke out, he ended up using the kid as a messenger. He used him as a runner. And that's what it was. He could relay right. information because by playing this game and the boy's name was Kim and he called it a Kim's game. And then in modern society now, um, keep it in mind. Yep. Yeah. Keep oh, in keep mind, in yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, and in modern society mm -hmm. now, they started with kids like Boy Scouts, like little kids will do it. Um, again, military units do it um, specifically like like recon or sniper platoons. Like it's very common there. Um, and then obviously sure. like the SF side. But yeah. Um, yeah, so whenever I was just looking up as you were speaking, that's what I was saying. When you did 25 and you're not themed, I'm like, man, you're going hard on these people. Because I know when we did it in my unit, we started, it was 12, and it was all the same theme. And we had two minutes to look at it. But we wouldn't do the exercise right away. We would, like, get shown it, like, let's say 7 in the morning as an example. We'd do our normal day shit, and then we'd do some crazy-ass PT session at the end of the day. And before we'd get cut, and then, then we would do it. it. Yeah, so it would be hours yeah. later. But it was always the same. Th it was always themed. It wasn't the same theme, but the 12 items could be from the same theme. And that's what it was, right? That's and right. then we based it on why things are seen, right? So, like, size, shape, color, contour. Well, obviously, you can't do sound because you're just looking at it. But you had to, like, guesstimate the most detail you could. And it was always timed when we did it. And, um, no, it's awesome, dude, that you're doing that for your training as well. And, again, for people listening, you can normalize it with your kids. And I'll give you a perfect example when you're driving. 
you're kind of doing Kim's game with cars and not even like super details on cars, but you can be, okay, how many Toyotas did we pass? Or, you know, what was the color of that last van we, we passed? Stuff like that. And it's like you said, it's the observation and you're, you're kind of normalizing it again and putting reps in because like you said, everyone's so plugged in now. Everyone's so into their screens. Like this is a lost art, which like, I love you brought up earlier, man. A hundred years ago, this was totally normal. This wasn't like an SF skill set. Right. Normal humans were doing this because they had to survive. That's right. For sure. For sure, man. But no, it's, and that's kind of just one of the, you know, one of the things that goes on with that and kind of people ask me, why do you teach what you teach? Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, it's because it's what I believe me personally makes up the skill sets needed. Yeah. Right. To know how to track, to know how to navigate, to know how to survive, to know how to use that in combination together. Um, I definitely believe the whole, the old Yagyu Minonori quote about the samurai, you know, it's, it's easy to teach, you know, or easy to be able to cut someone down. It's next to impossible to keep from being cut down yourself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we do teach lethality. That's one of the things that I'm a hundred percent proponent. You need to know how to fight. You need to, you know, work your weapon. You need to be accurate and be extremely violent. That is no surprise at all. I will never downplay that. However, in my opinion, that's about 1% of the equation. The rest of it that you need to learn is how not to get killed. Yeah. And that means yeah. multiple threat vectors, whether it's medical, you know, whether it's long-term sustainment and survival, all of those things, you know, and even the medical man is that, yes, I teach a lot of combat trauma. Okay. For sure. Cause that is the bulk of what people are geared for with active killer or whether law enforcement or, you know, other pre-hospital, even hospital providers, we do teach that. So how to perform that activity and those skills. And, you know, that is, is, is I won't say as, as simple, but that is to the point of a tourniquet to, uh, you know, wound packing, to chest seals, to needle decompression, even all the way up into getting into like surgical airways and, you know, higher echelon care of individuals. Um, that's there. But, you know, the other thing is that we need to be thinking about how do I stay healthy long term in a non-permissive environment? Do I understand just basic physiology of the human, the needs and, and what we have to have? How does hygiene come into play? You know, thinking about, hey, if you can't keep germs out of food and you can't keep your body healthy, you're going to die just as sure as you would a bullet wound. You know, that's that's not going to change anything. So I think the conversation on that uh, deserves to have a more long range approach with it as well, you know, being able to, to continue on with that and, and, uh, and continue to study. Uh, there's a great book out there. It's called ditch medicine. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. No, no, I haven't. To it. Take a look at it, try to find it. Um, it's written for like austere applications. I've read it and I think it's amazing. Um, it's, is not normal as far as what you would see in modern medicine, but it is it's great. It talks a lot about, uh, using sugar, Okay. For yeah. uh, wound wound care, wound like care. making yeah. poultices and yeah, all that kind of stuff. So kind of like Civil um, War stuff, because I know they did a lot of that in the American Civil War. Yeah, Napoleonic, Napoleonic War, War stuff. Really yeah, yeah. They they really started to try to like introduce even like almost what they thought was a crystalloid at the time, uh, you know. But wound care with sugar, you know, and that now you got to be careful because what happens is the reason that they're using it is, and I, I don't want to geek out on med, but I do want yeah. to talk med if, you know, yeah, if, for what's sure. going on. If you have a wound, okay, let's say for instance, it doesn't matter. I was taught the easy way to remember was a keyword, callip, C-A-L-I-P, crush, abrasion, laceration, incision, and puncture. 
Now, there's other different types that fall into that, but the most of them are made up of that. When you develop whatever type of wound that it is, <clears throat> the severity of that wound is generally determined by the depth of it and how much structure that is damaged, you know, how much vasculature that is open, how much you bleed, et cetera, et cetera. Now, on that end, the more you bleed, obviously, physiologically, the more you're going to downgrade, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously all bleeding stops, whether you stop it or it stops itself, it eventually stops. Um, but with just the wound care itself, if we have wounds that are um, jagged, they're not clean, they're not, you know, good channels, they're not cut, it's going to be very difficult for that wound to heal, right? So if you think about if you had like a hand or a foot and it was shot mm -hmm. and there's a hole in it, that hole does not want to heal. Holes are very difficult to close up because we need that tissue to come together and we need a granulation to occur on that, right? Now, here's something that you can put kind of in your toolbox on this. Generally, the window on that is six hours. If you can't close a wound within six hours, you actually have to let it heal by what is called secondary intent because the granulation is occurring in the cells and it's turning into those keloids in that scar tissue at that time. It's changing itself so that it can develop that. So that means those cells are no longer wanting to close back together to heal together and provide that particular vasculature across that. So anything after six hours, you generally don't sew that up unless you come in there, you numb it up and you actually cut that out to make that wound channel clean and then suture that back together. So with those irregular style wounds, the use of the sugar, what it does is the sugar goes into the wound and it's covered and it creates an anaerobic atmosphere. So you remove all of the oxygen from the surface area, which means that we remove the ability for bacteria to form there. All right. So the problem is, is that eventually the sugar is going to mix with the fluid, right? Mm -hmm. So the plasma or the interstitial fluid that's coming out of that location, and it's going to want to turn into a goo, you know? So around 12 hours, what you have to do is now clean that wound out, get rid of that, and then pack with dry sugar again. Okay. So it is continuous that you mm -hmm. have to do that. If you let it sit up and turn into that, it's going to definitely turn into infection uh, because of that mixed process that's going on. And what's weird about it is that if you have some type of sucrose, glucose, dextrose, whatever the sugar application is, if it gets inside the tissues itself, it's actually necrotic it will cause the tissue to rot. So the fact that we can use it on the surface and change it out is amazing that that works to begin with. It has been shown that that's, you know, that's, that's applicable and that it'll work. It's a balancing and, act uh, for sure will, though, like you said, cause yeah. It is. <clears throat> all things in medicine really is at the end of the day though. Mm -hmm. It's all about, you know, trying to find some type of homeostasis every time, you know, whatever we're doing. You know, it, now if you, if you work with us and you're a pre-hospital provider license that you have to stay updated, mm -hmm. um, you cannot, be employed actually if you do not maintain you know like bls yep. cpr mm -hmm. and there's a acls advanced cardiac life support and others you know at certain levels of paramedic but even our law enforcement officers have gotten to a point where we get a call and they're like hey can you research some of our people and it's like okay well when when did they go out oh no they went out like six months ago and it's like bro you got to redo all of it yeah you're carrying an aed in your car mm -hmm. A lot of times, you know, you can be on a scene first, depending on what's yeah. going on, doing yeah. CPR. Like, how are you not current? Being the person who says, I'm, I'm, I'm about to expire, I probably should take it upon myself to go get recertified. We go back to that conversation. It's not your department's uh, responsibility to train you in the end of the day, right? That's up to you to, to maintain your own skill set. So, yeah. So, no, you, we see it. Yeah, see it's it. just very weird, right, in the, in the uniform world. And I know um, 
I know for me, I tried to seek out any form of training that was not just first aid or CPR. And again, it's, it's Canada, whatever sources there were, they're like, well, it's only Miller LE. And I'm like, okay, well, I am LE. And they're like, well, is your department paying for it? I'm like, no, they're not. That's why I'm doing it. I'm like, they're literally not doing it. Here's my badge number. Here's my ID card. Literally, let me take it. I'm not even going to build my department. I just want it yeah. because I see the need yeah. for it. And um, yeah, first aid and CPR is like another easy sell, right? Like, l- like literally kids can take it and people just like you said in this um, consumerism community, they'll find the guy on Instagram for a shooting company or a tracking company or survival over a medical, which is, again, it's insane to me that uh, there's not more for people sure. seeking this out. Do you, um, for your, for your medical specifically, do you have, because you're like local to Georgia and like you are a full-time paramedic, do you have like a classroom where people come to you or do you travel to them for the medical specifically? It depends on what the classes are. Okay. Right. So a lot of times, uh, I teach in levels. Mm -hmm. So I'll teach, uh, the, the, the concept that I use is ACTC. It's applied combat trauma care. And that's just the name I slapped on it. Okay. That's what it is for branding purposes, for intellectual property, for even I have to deal with continuing education hours mm-hmm. for individuals. You know, we submit documentation and they have it approved and all that kind of stuff. Um, but under that, there's modules. And so I'll do a basic life support module where we'll teach CPR. We'll teach regular first aid to people if they want to do that. And then we have just a hemorrhage control module, you know, where we do nothing but tourniquets mm-hmm. and packing. And then that moves into um, the other levels as well. And, you know, once we get into that, I have what is the ITR course, which has probably been the most popular, and it's the immediate trauma response. And that's built off of a scenario-based training oh, nice. where, you know, you come in for, for a full day and you start off with, you know, learning hemorrhage control, you're learning about shock and, and all this, why it's important, wound packing, skill sets. And then we start learning about extraction, okay. how to rig webbing on individuals and pull them out of places, you know, how to do that. And then we start learning about how to develop plans, how to look at a structure and do casualty collection points, you know, thinking about where we're going to do our handoffs at, you know, moving into an area that's in danger and then how to negate the threat and then start prioritizing finding and treating and triaging patients and then pulling them out, extracting them. Now, in the end, we're going to do a, a full a full shebang. You know, we're going to have people come in and they're going to have uh, moulage or makeup on. Mm-hmm. They're going to have wounds and they're going to be role players. And we're going to put you in environments that are very unfriendly. You know, so if you're that type of person where, you know, you like to get into some weird stuff, that's what's going to happen there. There's going to be a lot of sensory deprivation going on. There's going to be a lot of sensory overload going on. And you're going to have to go into that environment. There could be threats, could not be threats. And then you're going to have to find them, treat them, pull them out. And uh, and do all that kind of stuff and get ready for a handoff and, and you know doing it. So that's that's generally how the med classes work out. So no, that, now that's as far super as awesome. Wise, we we always look for venues, right? Because the classroom is great, and there's certain things we can get. But I try to move outside of the classroom mm-hmm. as much as I can in everything I teach. If we're doing bushcraft survival, we need to be out there. If we're doing medical, I like to try to use appropriate facilities. The the more uh, you know, basic type of stuff, you're fine. We, we generally find people who want to host classes and we can use a business, we can use a church, we can use whatever it is that you want to use there. But then when we start getting into the more aggressive stuff, we start looking for larger commercial buildings mm-hmm. of use that, you know, you can change the layout. Even if you take two of those classes, they're two different classes because of where your, 
you know, you're operating yeah. in the building and doing yeah. that kind of stuff. So, how long have you been doing um, Sealess now in in general in the broad scope between medical and all the bushcraft <sighs> and survival? Because you've been a paramedic how many years so now? I'm, Sorry, how long have you been a paramedic? So, so right now I've been working in pre-hospital medicine for almost five years. Okay, is where I'm at with everything, and uh, I started Sealess actually when um, during COVID is when the thought came to mind and I was teaching with a group, like I said uh, earlier, and uh, was teaching with our state here on doing some stuff. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking and I was like, you know, man, there's just some things I don't really jihaw with Mm -hmm. about this and I'd like to do differently. And while I'm doing that, I would really like to teach a lot of other classes at the same time. So the you know, opportunity presented itself, and I stuck myself out on a limb there and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. And uh, I did, and haven't really, haven't really looked back from it since then. Now, I, I've curbed some of the class as far as scheduling-wise on certain things just because I've you grow. You figure mm-hmm. out what works and what doesn't. And I, I'm not a full-time training company. I still work, you know, normal jobs, plural kind of deal. And I still have a passion for doing that stuff. So I have to make sure when we when we, we plan that it's going to be a class. You can get mm-hmm. people in the class. It's not going to be too often, not enough, you know, that kind of stuff, whatever. But I, I try to go more in specializing on what I, what I see that people really want to get into and, and what they're really going to do and, and offer that kind of stuff. So, But, you know, my thing is I've always told people I don't believe you can specialize in everything. Um, I don't consider myself a perfect at any particular skill, I don't see myself as being the man, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the subject matter expert on anything. Uh, but what we have done is if people have uh, a request for a certain type of course, I'll find that person and I'll bring them in. Yeah, we'll smart. Do, you know, we'll host it for you because yeah. I like learning whatever you want to learn about it. I want to learn about it, too. Let's do it. You know, and I'll get in there with them. We'll figure it out and learn together. Um, but, you know, we're just trying to grow a community based. And a lot of these guys, you know, all these people that come to the classes, they meet each other and they're like, Hey, let's hang out. Yeah. You know, let's trade numbers. Let's, let's get together. Let's, uh, let's train, you know, let's kind of build, mm-hmm. yeah, let's build a community and, and share ideas and, and Hey, have you seen this? Hey, let's go, Hey, let's go take this other company's class. And I tell people hundred percent of the time, like I'm not, I'm not that I'm not the jealous girlfriend. <laughs> like if you like other companies and go take those classes for sure. And the cool thing about it is if you go take those classes and you're like, man, they're doing this, come and show me. Cause I want to learn. Yeah. You know, I want to see what's yeah. going on, too, and, and try to learn as well. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that's just kind of what we're doing, man. And I try to be really um, I, an includer, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, my problem with a lot of training that I've done um, was that I was like, why am I giving this asshole my money? Yeah. Because a lot of times yeah. you get into these classes and the instructors treat the people like dirt and they're condescending and. You know, I'm like, good God, man, like, you don't have to be this way. We're literally giving you money for the knowledge in your head. You think that you could be slightly polite about it. It's the difference, Um, again, though, between, like, an instructor and a leader. And I use those two words very drastically, right? Like, you, you can be an instructor, but then there's, like, you could be the leader. And a lot of these other companies are just, you're paying for their name, right? The guy can't really teach you even how to boil an egg, let alone how to, how to do that skill. Or, or like, and that's the, yeah, they just don't do it correctly, right? That's the adage, you know, that I've, I've seen as well is that it's, it's often difficult because um, there are lots of dudes out there who are extremely 
capable mm-hmm. and who have great backgrounds and experiences and they have experiences that are 50 times greater than mine, you know, and the issue then becomes how can you convey that to someone else, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll give you a slight anecdote. I, I was working at this location down in Florida for a while and uh, there was some really, really uh, high tier guys that were, you know, working in this location and teaching. And these guys, you know, had probably laid down more meat than Chuck Norris. You know what I'm saying? Like these guys were bad dudes. And um, you listen to them and shrugged and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is my takeaway. This is whatever. And then you hear something sometimes and it's like, I feel like we have to be a little bit more careful on this approach here because it becomes almost so nonchalant that yes, you can operate at this level and you have the experience or whatever, but you can't expect someone who's day one to understand the totality of what you're explaining Mm -hmm. just because it's simple to you. Yeah. You see what I mean? And one of the comments that was made is, is, you know, they were like, it was a CQB, you know, of course it was, they do this. And I was, (laughs) Right, because that's, that's the only that's thing, the only thing that's the only thing to learn is CQB and how to tie that's off your all you knobs. need to know is C, CQB. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> um, and the guy said, you know, oh, well, he's like, just shoot him in the foot. And everybody's like, what? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you can't believe how many people will, you know, lead the doorway with a foot. He's like, you don't know how many times I've shot somebody in the foot and they fall on the ground and I shoot them in the face. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, like, man... I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, these normal people don't there get has it. To be more, there has to be more context. Yeah, you yeah. can't, there does have to be a lot more context <laughs> than that and how we, how we divulge this information and, and what's going on. Um, but that's also, you know, I, I, I've been in that type of class before when you get to around lunchtime and the instructor says, so what do y'all want to do now? Oh yeah. Those like, are you're like, bro, what am I doing here? Why am I paying like, for this? <laughs> You, you tell me, I, I was hoping you would be prepared for what happens yeah. for the other four hours that I'm here. Yeah. But, um, but like you, so, you and you I know, saw you, in the military too, though, man. And like, and I love this, like talking to more dudes from whatever military or whatever branch, it doesn't have to be Marine army, whatever. Everyone's seen that guy where they're teaching a class now where they're teaching you a skill, but they don't even really know it. They're just teaching it because they're rank. You know what I mean? They're put in that BS right, leadership right. position and you're a new guy and you're like, Oh that corporal or that sergeant is teaching this class. And then you talk to another dude to that rank and they're like, that guy's an idiot. Why is he teaching? I'm like, well, he was told to. That's right. Right. So it's very hard in this and community. I, I, I have experience with that as well. Cause I was able to teach uh, within the Marine Corps. And I saw that where, you know, would have people who are much higher to, than me. Mm-hmm. And I would be ex- explaining something like land nav uh, to them. And they're like, what, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, man. Like this is, you know, this, 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 and this is what you're looking at or whatever. And it just shows you that 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 is a, a culture of its own is. that kind of grows and, and goes from there. And um, but I really do support because I you know I've, I've been asked this question and and you know talked with numerous people about it and they're like, what do you think about people with no military experience teaching certain classes? And or like, what do you think? Like talking earlier about other companies. Mm-hmm. And my 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 easy motto, my easy answer is go take all the training that you can. Yeah. You're going to learn two things. You're going to learn how to do it or you're going to learn how not to do it. And sometimes the classes that I've been to and my only takeaway was how not to do something was the best class that I've been to. Right. Because you proved to me without a shadow of a doubt that there's no way I'm doing that. Absolutely at all. Am I going to do that? Um, And you showed me the perfect environment that it fills and how that works. 
And uh, so I, I really support a lot of the companies out there, even some of the guys in social media with these huge accounts and stuff, and they have no military experience whatsoever. I'm 100% supportive of their endeavors and efforts to get out there and teach. Because I'll be honest with you, looking at the skill sets that they're displaying, those skill sets are legitimate. Those guys can shoot, they can run, they can do all kind of stuff. Now, would I be like, hey, we're about to go into fourth generational warfare, things are collapsing, I want you to be my squad leader? No, I'm probably not going to say that, right? Because we'd want somebody with the understanding of how to conduct certain things to take on that particular role. So there is that. But, you know, it, when it comes to, to tactics, you know, or, or what's tactical, that word is so misused and overused. And that kind of my uh, my litmus test of sorts in conversations is to say, okay, well, what does tactical mean? What what are tactics? You know, define that for me. And it seems to be like pornography. You can't really, you know, you can't really describe it, but you know what it is when you see it type of deal. Mm -hmm. And that's generally the best, uh, you know, definition that I'm given. But I'm like, okay, uh, here's the deal. Here's what we break down to. And this is why it's important to teach and go back to it is, you know, you can teach people how to shoot. You can teach people how to patch bullet holes or whatever. But when we start talking about the tactical aspect of it, we have to teach them how to think. Yeah. Right. And it's not, it's not a good instinct. It's like, well, you're either born with it or not. No, that's not true. It's, it's scientific. We know that it's scientific. You can coach someone and teach them on how to develop a tactical mindset and how to generally make the correct choice more than not. Because that is dynamic situations, no matter what they are, a gunfight, natural disaster, whoever, whatever, all of those, I, I treat them the same because um, they represent a collection of ever-evolving problems. Mm -hmm. And when you have a collection of ever-evolving problems, you don't just make one right decision. And that's the decision that wins the day. You generally are having to make 20, 30, 40 decisions, and those have to be towards the correct vector every time. They may not be the perfect answer, right? Because the, the enemy of, of good is perfect, but they need to be decisive in nature and they need to go with the flow of understanding how the outcome is going to present itself. And that is something that I've learned over the years that you need to try to develop the ability to understand. Everybody likes to use the OODA loop. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you heard about class, yeah. the Boyd yeah. cycle and all that. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it a million times. And I was like, OODA loop. Okay. I observe, orient, I decide, and I act. And I'm like, what What the hell am I doing? Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? You know? Like, so then I started thinking of, of understanding the OODA loop is not really a circle on a piece of paper. If you could imagine, I know we're on audio, so it's mm -hmm. difficult for people to see this mm -hmm. or imagine. But if you could take that piece of paper yeah, and, and fold turn it. it now yeah. to the side, mm -hmm. yeah, you would actually see that it would look a lot more like a slinky. Yep. Right? It's elongated yep. and it's it's showing you decision making over time because as we get to that next rotation of that ring and that slinky, what we have done has now had an impact into the surrounding and the other individuals involved, good or bad, are reacting. They're reacting. Right. And so now their data is changing. Their feedback is changing. And we're in a constant state of being fluid where the first scenario, the first situation is not the scenario we see now. We have both put some type of feedback into the environment and now things are going to change. And so I can't just make that one decision and stop. I have to continue going on basically autopilot, if you will. I hate to use that term, but going on that ability 
to perceive and, and all the way to the end, whatever the end is, the end state has to be found. And that tactical decision-making <clears throat> is what, you know, what makes that up. And it's important for people to try to explore that and try to develop that. It's important to try to play, you know, I wouldn't say game, so to speak, but to, to challenge themselves and think about, you know, a concept of war gaming in some sort. And war gaming doesn't have to be sand table exercises at the battalion level or whatever. It can be yourself just thinking about, okay, if this were to happen, this is some of the things that I would do. All right, well, let's take some of the things I said I would do and let's start throwing problems at them. And then I say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not going to work. I, I need to come up with something better than that. And then trying to do that. And then if you got a group of buddies, right, and you guys train together and that's kind of your, your squad, so to speak, do the same thing with them. Mm -hmm. You know, start gaming with them and, and start looking at your practices and, and start, you know, it's, it could be as simple as going and breaking out the Ranger Handbook, you know, or going and break out any type of tactical manual or field manual and starting to do immediate action drills, you know, starting to do battle drills and practice. Okay, here the, here's breaking contact. Here's react contact. Here's a peel left, peel right. Here's how we would think about establishing a supporting base of fire and then fire and movement or fire and maneuver, you know, and rehearse some of those things. And while you're rehearsing it, you know, someone can say, well, you know, if we did this, this would this would turn out better. And everybody's like, you know what? They'll throw rocks at him because that's not what the ranger manual says. We have to do it this way. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't do that. Yeah. You say, hey, you know what, man? Yeah. Let's try it and see what happens. And if it works, then you incorporate that into your practice. And then, you know, you keep on going from there. And that's one of the really big things that I learned was getting to um, be autonomous, mm -hmm. you know, and developing that mm -hmm. autonomy between, you know, whoever you're working with that you can say, because I, I honestly, man, I, I've seen it uh, both in the military and both in law enforcement. Law enforcement was kind of some of the most egregious, you know, uh, examples. You know, one guy would go and like, okay, well, I went to this FBI class and they bring back a new way to clear rooms. And I'm like, I highly doubt it's new. You know what I mean? I hate to be that way, but, you know, in, in that, when the wars started, mm -hmm. you know, diving down and going away, a lot of people started to look for more relevancy in training and trying to reinvent things. And I'm not saying that all of them weren't good. I'm just saying that, you know, once you look at it, not all of them were relevant. Mm -hmm. You know, not all of them were better just because it was new. And my thing was, okay, bring back something from the schoolhouse and then let's tear it apart. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. if, if it really is that great, it should survive anything that we're going to throw at it. Because that's one of the worst things. We've always done it this way. It's always worked for us. That's going to get you killed. You know, it doesn't I matter hate that line, man. It's I, always been that way. Yeah. And, and we should be, like I said, we should be reflexive to the point where we can say, okay, let's, let's not, let's not hang on to a certain doctrine. If it's a sacred cow, let's slaughter it. You know, let's find a better way forward and, and try to develop it. And, uh, that's kind of, kind of what I'm about and no matter what we're doing. And I tell people, like I told you earlier, you know, if you find a better way to do something in a particular skill set, come and show me. That's awesome. I will steal your moves every single time. If you show me something that works better than what I do, I will take it <laughs> and I will use it. And, you know, if I find something that works better than that, I will take it and I will use it. And I'm going to continue to try to develop things in that nature. And, you know, the things I did 10 years ago is not the way I do it today. And yeah. Hopefully in 10 years from now, they're yeah. not going to be the way I do them right now. Yeah, exactly. So, no, and that's, and that's like the best approach, man. And that's what I mean for out of uniform for all the prepared citizens, you're in the best scenario because like I said earlier, you can make your own SOP. You can evolve annually. You can learn something else 
and make it become your doctrine instead of being in a unit in a uniform with an agency where they're like that's not policy and you just you repeat the same crap every year or you don't do things properly because like we said it's it's uh politicized or they're making it more inclusive or whatever the case may be but um no man i really like I really like your approach, Lance, with all of it, and it's just it's sick to see, man, that you're blending it not just from the shooting side. Like we said, it's you're doing survival, you're doing bushcraft, you're doing you're doing fieldcraft, you're doing um and a, the big thing, the med- the medical too. Are you doing? Because again, you have a full time job, like most people who are in this space trying to build a brand. Are you for your classes? Would you say it's fifty fifty medical with the bushcraft survival, or are you mostly teaching medical? Because it's like uh, medical's probably just. It's like one of the seven things okay. that's going on there. Okay. Uh, some of my most popular classes are the what I call all-steer applications, yep. the land nav. Mm-hmm. Dude, land nav is huge. Everybody loves it. Tracking people love it. The survival and bushcraft. Mm-hmm. You know, and honestly, I'm very drawn to that. I enjoy that activity, and I like getting out there and doing it anyways. But um, you know, when I have medical classes come up, people generally jump all over that. There's a lot of people that like to get in you know, that's awesome. to, to doing that. Um, and that's, that's kind of cool, man. And what you were talking about a minute ago was that, you know, you said you had the ability now to come up with your own SOP. Yeah, dude. And I want people to really take that home with them. You can make up your own training plan. You can make up your own objectives annually and decide, okay, this is the dude I'm going to get medical from. This is the dude I'm going to get like for, um, survival from this is the shooting I'm going to get her. Oh, I'm dialed in on shooting. I need to really focus on medical for the next six months. You can make your own training plan. You don't have some loser in battalion telling you what you're doing. (laughs) Exactly. And I actually, I, I warn people, and you know, this kind of ruffles people's hair because we don't like to be questioned on our own successes yeah. and failures. You know, people, we talked about that. Um, and what I take away from that is by, you know, explaining certain things where, you know, like what I was taught in the modern military, and probably you were very close to the same doctrine more than likely, the doctrine of the West and how to fight war. Um, I have to ask people, well, did it work? No. I would laugh no. and be like, no, it didn't. And then the policy no. we were taught, we didn't do. And as soon as you come back, they're like, okay, that didn't work, but the war is over. We're going back to policy. I'm like, that's, that's a ridiculous answer. Yep. And so my thing is this, is that if you are out there, you're just an everyday person. Don't think that you have to, you know, um, develop yourself as the modern American warrior, you don't have to go out and buy a plate carrier and a bump helmet and nods and, and, you know, operate like you're on SEAL team six and all that kind of stuff. Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of people are moving away from that for good reason. You know, we're going to be lighter, go back to, you know, light infantry tactics, even gear. You know, I personally don't run a a plate carrier in my gear. I know a lot of people find that insane. Uh, I'm completely fine with it. There's very few situations where I would now see myself putting on a plate carrier to have to go and do some type of work. I want to be lightweight. I want to be more, you know, reconnaissance, light mm-hmm. profile. Uh, I want to be not seen, not heard type of application in everything I'm doing. And, um, you know, that's just me on that aspect. It doesn't mean that's what other people have to do, but I find a lot of credence in the doctrine to support that in the training and the problem solving. But, you know, you can be an everyday dude and start figuring out basic concepts of fighting, Right. And you can research, you can study, whatever, and you don't have to just copy what is out there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Now, there's some things to take away from it and say, okay, I, I completely understand this is probably the best way to perform an ambush, you know, whether what position it is and what style it is. 
But at the same time, what I learned was that there was a lot of uh, infallibility there when it came to the doctrine that we were using. And looking at the other doctrines around the world, they know what we're doing. It's not a secret to them. Mm -hmm. And other countries and other places are preparing for war with us, and they're planning on using our doctrine against us. And so I talk about this author a lot, a huge a guy named H. John Poole, um, and his writings are amazing. If you want to start with one, it's called Phantom Soldier. Read that book. It'll change your life. Um, it is an introspective study that goes all the way from the Japanese in World War II all the way up to uh, the NBA and Viet Cong and Vietnam and how basically they embraced the art of war when it comes to squad-based warfare. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it's based upon and how the squad can fight you know, small, irregular elements and how the squad can fight even larger professional elements and succeed in doing that by the strengths that they give each other. And uh, so that's kind of kind of what that's about. And I would say do that because, you know, if you're if you're out there saying, OK, well, we're going to do nothing but practice a react contact drill. Right. And so a lot of times doctrine tells us if that ambush is less than 50 meters away and or within hand grenade range, you're fighting through the element yeah. that's in. <laughs> Yeah, the, the element that's in immediate contact is going to push towards that kill zone and push towards that enemy, right? That's what it tells us. Well, what if I knew that that's what you were going to do? What if I established a separate ambush and I hit you in the first kill zone, knowing that you would attack through, I gave with defense and depth, and you find yourself in a fire sack. Mm -hmm. I knew you were going to do it. I played you at your own game. That's what I'm getting at with this is that you have to be able to evolve that skill set on the small level mm -hmm. all the way to the large level and choose what it is that you're going to incorporate and how you're going to use it and make sure that it's just not copy paste because some modern military told you to do it. And I'm going to tell you, you know, the modern military and even into other agencies or whatever, logistics is the name of the game for them. You know, they're going to want to um, have the most logistics in the field. We as regular people need to learn how to get away from that and how to say, hey, I can't supply myself like they can, you know. We also need to see the weakness that exists in forces who are using logistics as their main. That's their centers of gravity and their critical vulnerability. We've got to realize that, you know, hey, to keep a modern army in the field requires fuel, requires water, requires all classes of supply to keep them going. What happens if they're denied those? If they go down to bare knuckles without resupply, how will they perform? You know, you think about like on the morale level. How long would they stay in the fight? You know, how long will you go to places like Georgia where we talked about the swamps and the heat mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, wearing a plate carrier, wearing a helmet and trudge around here in July? Dude, welcome to the jungle, baby. If you think that that's going to work for you, I have some bad news. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not going to turn out well. So uh, and that's the thing. I'm not saying, hey, you should be preparing to fight, you know, a modern army. I'm not saying you should be prepared to fight law enforcement. I, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you should realize all walks of life, all different vectors and say, hey, if I ever had to fight them, how would I do it? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If it ever came to me, you know, how, how would I make this happen and start developing, you know, plans that are based upon that, you know, and that includes everything from everyday defense of yourself, all the way up to thinking of worst case scenarios and trying to encompass and come up with a doctrine or certain doctrines that are concentric you know they flow together they make sense and they grow and they that skill set is encompassed within that so that if the situation changes you're not really switching gears that much 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're just doing it at a, with a different group on the on the other end. You know, so. Yeah, and this is something I've I've talked about a lot with um with Ian like from Bushplad. We've talked about this a lot, saying like the modern army, the GWAT vet, the bro vet that everyone loves is so reliant on a supply chain, is so reliant on a rear echelon. And the everyday prepared citizen, I'm like, you don't have a rear echelon coming. You don't have someone else to support you. You're lucky if you have a group of buddies that are, you know, within driving distance to you. You need to just learn all these skills on your own. And that's what I mean, that people can cherry pick what skills they need to learn, not what's sexiest from Instagram. They're like, what do I need to help me be the most prepared I can be? And I love, dude, your approach with medical specifically, because like I said, it's not seen as sexy because like we said this whole time, we've seen it on the law enforcement or emergency response side. It's it's dumped to the side, unless you're an actual paramedic. Everyone else, they dump it. They're like, well, I'm not a paramedic. I'm going to wait for Lance, the medic, to show up. I'm like, yeah, but we can't let Lance in. Like, there's still someone getting shot around here. I probably need a trauma bag on me because I'm finding kids now. So That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I've even had conversations where I disagree on seeing what's going on. And I've had someone say, hey, you can't go in there. It's a crime scene. And I said, well, are they dead? And they say, well, we don't know. And I say, well, outstanding. <laughs> Until they are dead, they are my patient. And this is not what happens if there's not a murder because the person doesn't die. Don't yeah. let me in there <laughs> yeah. and fix it. Yeah. And maybe we can change this. Yeah. So it does. It, it takes some it takes some uh, some humility and some 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 thought you know to to get to that level and i agree with you 100 percent on no that, so. and, and you're definitely pushing it the way it should be pushed lance so whatever you're doing keep on trucking brother don't stop like this attitude will eventually make it normal in a culture that's completely toxic right now and the uniform side and then the non-uniform side people just want to band-aid shit by um consuming 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 they're not consuming training or skills they're consuming uh gear items that's right. So. That's right. And, and I'll tell you know anyone out there listening, man, if, if you work, you know, full time in some type of uniform, I don't want you to take offense to what I'm saying. Right. You, you know, you need to be humble enough to look at it and say, you know what, dude, there's some truth to what's going on there. And, you know, if you find yourself having to support those actions and having really start thinking about why you're doing what you do, mm-hmm. you know, and say, hey, you know what? We are not. No one's perfect. We all make mistakes. You know, I make mistakes all the time. The people I work with make mistakes all the time. It, it just occurs, and we try to learn from that best we can. You know, so try to take yourself out of that and look at the big picture. And, you know, then individuals that, you know, are not, they're just everyday people. I need you to realize something extremely important, that at the end of the day, nobody's coming to save you. Yeah. They're not. No one is. No. It, 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 it's not. And if you think that there's these superheroes out there in uniform, and that they're white knights and infallible, I'm going to guarantee you that's not the truth. You know, it's not. For every person who wants to be on top of their game and they're driving, you're going to find 10 who are not. And when the metal hits the meat, they're probably going to back out and say, nah, you know. And we've seen it with, you know, medical does it on a daily basis. We've seen it with these active killer situations where they don't go in. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's something that we could, that's happening. It's not, it's not conjecture. It's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's just, you know, that's just kind of where we are. But the biggest thing is you got to realize you're not alone. You've watched the news, you look at social media, you look at all this stuff and you're going to feel like I'm the minority. What I'm doing is weird. You know, it's not, don't just forget all that. Okay. Do what you want to do because you want to be a free person. You know, there's nothing more dangerous than a person 
who is able to start thinking and trying to figure out what's going on around them and then trying to say, you know what, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be, you know, I want to live this way and this is what I want to preserve. Nothing's more dangerous than that. So start with that, start developing that skill set behind it. And once you get that skill set going, then start implementing with gear and tools to fit in with the tactics that you're using. Learn from my mistakes, learn from your mistakes, learn from everybody else's mistakes, where most of us probably have an entire room of gear that we don't use anymore because we bought this shit and was like, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I thought I had to have it. And now it's completely useless to me. Um, you know, and try to do that, especially if you're on a budget, you know, if you're, you know, can't afford all these things or whatever, like most of us, you work, you have bills, you got to feed a family, whatever. Um, try to approach it like that and try to really step away from that consumerism and say, no, you got to have this. No, you got to have this. You don't, you know, my thing is that I want to be to the position where something bad is happening and I don't have anything on me. I could dip into a hardware store and collect five to six items and walk out and say, I'm probably gonna make it for a while with this right here <laughs> until I can improve my position somewhere else. That's where we need to be. And I even tell hey, test it out, you know, go and, and try to find the, the limited amount of things you can and go spend the night in the woods and see how far you get with it and learn from it and keep on going from there, you know? So that's just my takeaway. You're not alone. Feel free to uh, reach out to me anytime, you know, whether it's email, uh, you can reach me at info at celestynamics.com. Uh, you can go to our website, www.celestdynamics.com. Uh, on Facebook, I hate Facebook, but I have a guy who manages Facebook, so you may not ever hear from us if you contact us on Facebook. Um, and then obviously, like Instagram and all that kind of stuff, you can reach out on there as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will chat, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm a guy that if you, I don't know you, but you randomly reach out and you're like, hey, you know this, I would be like, hey, man, all right, have you thought about this? You know, I don't mind having those conversations with people and, um, you know, and trying to help them figure out stuff and, and, you know, kind of go from there with it. So thanks for everything today, Lance. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, sit down and chat and, oh man, I could talk to you for friggin' more hours. There's so much information, dude, that you have that I want to share, but I appreciate you making the time for us, uh, this week. Anytime, man. And, and if you're interested in training and you want to come to us, definitely come to us. Um, and if you're interested, like in the place that you live and it's like, well, that's too far. And I got a group of people contact me, man. I'm interested in coming to your part of the world. We can establish a class out there. You can host us and we'll bring whatever you want to. We'll custom make it and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's fun to be able to get out there and, you know, and do that. So, but yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. I hope we can, uh, we can do it again and we can get into even more specific, especially if anyone has, you know, request about certain things they want to talk about or they want to get into, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it so yeah for sure awesome well thanks everyone for staying tuned to another episode this has been hard times strong men creating a better class of man stay savage and stay in the fight yeah.